Hi, I'm Alicia Lockhart. And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets. Today we're going to cover another murder case connected to the death fetish community. It's the murder of a woman named Sharon Lapotka, who was murdered on October 16, 1996. What's really interesting about this case is that both the victim and the murderer were fetishers. And I don't, I, yeah, I don't think I've ever read about or heard about a case like that before. Yeah, it's interesting to me, but I guess it doesn't surprise me. You know, these fetishers are so, they're so intense. They're so obsessed with their fetish. And so two of them continuing to like bolster each other into more intense situations. That makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what's even more interesting, I think, about this case is this was one of the first cases that's been reported where a police department has arrested a murder suspect with evidence that they primarily gathered from email messages. So I thought that was incredibly interesting. And just a little bit of background. Sharon was born on September 20th, 1961. She was raised by an Orthodox Jewish family in Baltimore, Maryland. Just, you know, a normal girl. And as a child, people even said that Sharon was about as normal as you can get. She liked to play volleyball. She played field hockey. She even sang in the choir. She was so normal and so level-headed and so dedicated to her community that she also spent her time as a nurse's aide, a teacher's aide, and even a library aide. I mean, just really, really normal type of person that you would meet every day. And so that to me, again, is interesting to later find out that she was also into death fetish. Sharon had a very active social life. And right after high school graduation, she ended up meeting her husband, Victor, and they got married in 1991. He was a construction worker. And sadly, her family just didn't approve of the marriage because Victor was not Jewish. So her relationship with her parents ended when she got married to Victor and they moved away, Sharon and Victor ended up moving to Hampstead, Maryland um, into a ranch style home. So again, they just on the outside, everything seemed peaceful. They had a happy life together. Very, very normal. When Victor was at work during the daytime, you know, Sharon did spend a lot of time on the internet. She ran some websites for some extra income. One was a website that she hosted called the house of Dion and it was a home decor website. Pretty innocent, right? Yeah. She even created a book about how to decorate houses. She sold it on the internet. She sold it through that website. She wanted to reveal industry secrets so that people could decorate on a budget. She had some really great ideas and she had advertisements that varied from things like how to glamorize your walls without messy wallpaper or hiring expensive decorators, easy sew and no sew home decor projects that anyone can do, transform any room in your house into a decorator's showcase. So again, she could have been our friend. She was normal. I was going to say she sounds like a Pinterest mom. (laughs) She, She does. Absolutely. She also had another website called Classified Concepts. And she she wrote ad copy for other businesses. So she was a writer. She liked to tell stories. Everyone thought Sharon's online hours were all about her decorating websites or writing. But Sharon had some deep, dark secrets. Dun, dun, dun. She also ran a psychic readings and spiritual advice website and a sex hotline, like a 1-900 pay-per-minute number. Ooh. 
So Sharon wasn't quite so innocent. In addition to those websites, Sharon also had started to delve into some pornographic websites, groups, and chat rooms. And believe it or not, she was frequenting websites like fetishfeet.com, sexbondage.com, and she was chatting with members that had fetishes such as necrophilia, bondage. And on those websites, she sold her undergarments, her used undergarments and pantyhose. Wow. Just some very dark, disturbing stuff. And she became a member of some very, very extreme news groups that were dedicated to fetish. I'm glad that you mentioned the news groups because it gives me an opportunity to share with our listeners just a little bit of our research during our undercover investigation. So I, in particular, was very interested about the history of this death fetish community. Like, how did it come to be on the internet? When did it come to be? And these extreme news groups that Sharon was a part of are really like the first places where people really started to gather and talk about their really dark fetishes. So like in the late 90s, there were all these different news groups. Usenet was a really popular place that was a news group. And so when I say news group, what I'm really meaning is like a discussion forum of sorts where files can be shared. And they're tricky to access because you need a news group reader installed on your computer to get in. So these were some of the first anonymous places to interact on the internet. People would use the groups to gather, talk about their dark fantasies and chat and share files. So Sharon was here on these news groups and she was flirting with disaster. She really started mixing business with pleasure. As LaDonna said, she was selling her pantyhose. So it seems like she was kind of stepping into this as like perhaps a money making thing, but she definitely had dark fantasies of her own too, or I don't think she would have been comfortable being in these places. I'm just, I'm just shaking my head right now. I mean, from what I can tell in our research about her, it doesn't seem like these are things she shared with her husband or her girlfriends or her family. So She goes into these news groups and she has a lot of different aliases that she goes by, but one of them was Nancy Carlson. And as Nancy, she would advertise that she was a film producer. She said that she was making custom films for clients and that she would make anything they wanted. And so one of her ads as Nancy said, hi, my name is Nancy I just made a VHS video of actual women willing and unwilling to be knocked out, drugged, chloroformed, under hypnosis, and never before has a film like this been made that shows the real beauty of a sleeping victim. Oh, that's appalling. So she's a woman talking about knocking out, drugging, and doing horrible things to other women. Uh, That blows my mind. Yeah. And she's saying, I can make a video like this for anybody who wants one. I'm Nancy Carlson. Let me know. What we discovered is that there actually was no proof that she made any of these videos. It doesn't seem like anybody took her up on this 
opportunity. But she was putting herself out there saying, I'm willing and able to make a film like this for you. I mean, is she going to meet up with people who are into home decor and hopefully knock them out to make a video? I mean, that's where my mind goes. That's This is frightening. Yeah, she even uses the word victim. She was willing to put together something like this if somebody had asked for this kind of video. She had a whole persona on these news groups of Nancy Carlson. She was telling people that she was a 300-pound disciplinarian dominatrix, that she was a pornographic film actress. So she really carried herself as a special person in these fetish communities. Wow. There were a few different fetish groups that she was in. One of the groups was a feeder and gainer fetish group. This is a fetish that's like a variant on fat fetish where people get sexual gratification from gaining weight or watching others gain weight. So she was in that group as Nancy, the 300-pound dominatrix. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, that's a fetish? I I did not know this. Yeah, so I guess in addition to some of the death fetishes that she had, she wanted somebody to act out this sort of fetish with her. She was also in a cannibalistic sex group. And Sharon was overweight, so she wasn't lying about being 300 pounds. And she would post her photos in these groups. And she really liked the attention she would get. From people in there. One of Sharon's fantasies was to have somebody feed her until she reached the weight of 475 pounds. So she was looking for somebody to help her gain 175 pounds through this feeder gainer fetish. One of her quotes in there, one of her posts said, I am not interested in email correspondence or phone feeding. What I really like is the real thing. I'm willing to be force fed if necessary. I'm also willing to relocate if that's what it takes to find the right feeder. I'm hoping someone out there will help me and we can share the most erotic experience of our lives. That's bizarre. Yeah. So it feels like there's almost this like escalation going on for Sharon. Like she starts out online with these very innocent businesses and then she kind of dabbles into the psychic world and dabbles into the sex hotlines. And then she finds these extreme fetish groups. She's in that feeder group for a while and then she moves into something more hardcore, the cannibalism group. And then it gets even more hardcore when she joins this alt.sex.necrophilia group. So this puts her right in our arena of death fetish community. She's talking to people now who are obsessed with necrophilia. She logs on on August 22nd and she makes a post that's titled, Want to Talk About Torturing to Death. And the body of her message says, Hi, my name is Gina. So she's using another alias. I was wondering if anyone out there would want to talk about the subject mentioned above with me. I kind of have a fascination with torturing till death. Of course, I can't speak about it with my friends or family. I'd love to have an email exchange with someone. If you're interested, go ahead and email me at gina108 at aol.com. I want to surrender completely. I want to die. I don't want to break up any marriages. So if you're married, please don't respond to this post. So she wants to die, but she has a conscience to some degree. 
because she doesn't want to break up any marriages. She is an interesting person. The cognitive dissonance there is interesting because she's writing this post as a married woman and she doesn't want to break up someone else's marriage, but she's okay with doing this within her own, it seems. It's confusing. It would be interesting to know a little bit more about what was going on in her own life and mind, depression, maybe her struggles, because you touched on something earlier that I just wanted to mention again, the escalation of this. It went from zero to 100 really, really fast. Yeah. And we know from the background that you gave us about her childhood, it sounds like it was a pretty normal childhood, but with her being in a very strict religious family who was unwilling to accept her choice of partner for marriage. And then her family kind of cut ties with her at that point. I'm sure that had to affect her in some way, or that might be a little hint as to what the the flavor of family connection was like for her. It sounds like she probably didn't have the support that she wanted or needed. I would tend to believe that's probably going to be a common theme with a lot of these fetishers. Yeah, I think so. They're looking for somewhere to belong. It's sad because everybody needs that sense of belonging. And it's concerning to me that people are finding that in these places that are encouraging them to continue these obsessive, unhealthy thoughts. So these sorts of posts that she was making about just her request and her interest in being tortured to death. These are the very thing that led this user named Slowhand to Sharon. Slowhand is the other fetisher in the story. He was a regular on a lot of the news groups as well. He was in the BDSM news group. He was kind of a kindred spirit to Sharon because he had been living a double life online as a sadistic dominant looking for female submissives. So they start chatting. He's going by slow hand. It's kind of unclear as to whether she was introduced as Gina or Nancy. When I research, I see both names on there. So she was being Nancy and Gina in the necrophilia site. And I believe that he started speaking to her or knowing her as Nancy. So they get in the habit of talking to each other through email. And there's six weeks of heavy, heavy email exchanges between them. We're talking like over 900 pages of emails about torture and death. And these emails, Slowhand is describing in great detail how he plans to sexually torture and kill her. And they're making plans to go ahead and meet up in person to fulfill these desires. Oh, it's it's disturbing. And as was a pattern for Sharon, this escalated quickly because very soon after all of this correspondence, Sharon would come face to face with her murderer. His name was Robert Bobby Frederick Glass. He was 45 years old. He worked as a computer analyst in North Carolina. He had held that job for about 16 years, Alicia. So he led oh, a so normal he's life. Pretty normal too. Yeah, very dedicated. 16 years is a long time. His task daily, I think, were probably boring maybe to him. They were mundane. He's programming tax rolls and keeping track of the amount of vehicle gas consumption in the ca- in the county. You could see how that might become boring for someone. Don't see how that leads to any kind of a death fetish, but I can see where you'd want to break away from this boring, mundane life. I mean, that makes sense to me. Probably not quite the way he did, but he had some things going on in his life, though. I think he was 
probably struggling with some depression and isolation. You know, he was recently divorced. His marriage had ended just months before, I believe in May. And he had been married to a woman named Sherry. And Sherry had been wondering really why Robert was no longer interested in her. And being the stellar guy he was, I'm being very sarcastic. He just told Sherry, he said, I'm not attracted to you anymore. Wow. And he's spending all of his time on the computer. So he was up to no good at that point. And Sherry was frustrated that he was spending all that time on the computer. So she decided to look at his computer and find out what was going on. And she discovered thousands of emails that were full of disarming images and violent messages and she was heartbroken and horrified can you imagine like having your husband just tell you i'm not attracted to you anymore and then finding out that he was more interested in these violent conversations and violent pornography that oh i can't imagine how she must have felt finding those things oh i mean that's it's marriage ending for sure but i can't imagine how she felt in terms of just emotionally that i mean that had to have destroyed her to know that was going on and she discovered that robert this man she married and loved was calling himself online slow hand and toy man she read through all this saw how disturbed he was and decided, you know, I can't stay in this marriage. So she took their daughters, she took their son, and she left. She took off. Robert's friends described him as introverted, and they also said they felt like he was pretty harmless. They described him as mild-mannered, and they said that he was a guy that stuck to small chat. So I'm sure he was pretty quiet and kept any kind of discussions to maybe how the weather is, how's your day. I mean, I can almost picture this guy. Not a lot of social skills. This is terrifying to me. And I feel like a lot of times when you read about serial killers, that's always what their neighbors and their friends say, that they were just nice, that they were simple. It's a mask. It's absolutely a mask. I almost picture Robert as the guy that has the pocket protector you know what I'm talking about and (laughs) and the one that's always reliable he's always on time you know very punctual very matter of fact and so to think that he was going home and turning into this violent persona just blows my mind yeah it's really shocking and I think that his wife probably made the right choice in getting those kids out of a household with this man and just saying okay you can do that over there I'm curious if Sherry ever wanted to tell the police what she had seen. I I guess that's probably complicated when you're married to someone. It's hard to um, think about seeking the attention of the authorities, but I would be really curious to know if she, because it sounds like she did see messages, and I'm sure that if he was talking to Sharon the way that he was, we know he was, I'm sure he was talking to other people like that too. And so I'm curious if she had wanted to tell anybody about that, but there's no evidence of her doing that. Well, Um, I was, I was curious about that too. And one of the things that I wondered is she felt neglected, obviously, because there was clearly no physical interaction between them. She's feeling lonely. But I wonder what his temper was like if they had violent arguments or if there was just no emotion at all with him. I'd be interested to know. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's any criminal record of like domestic disputes or anything. So I sort of picture him like you were saying, just sort of shut off 
quiet, desensitized, but he's got all these desires that he's kept locked up. And it seems like you can't really do that. It comes out somewhere. And so I think that it finally did just come out for him on October 13th in 1996. So this is the date that Sharon decides to leave her home and her plan is to never return. So she tells her husband, Victor, that she's going to go visit some friends in Georgia. She lies about where she's going. And then she drives herself to the Amtrak station and gets on a train at 9.15. And the train is headed to Charlotte, North Carolina. So before she boards the train, she actually writes a note and leaves it at home for her husband, Victor. And the note says that she's leaving him and that she's never going to return And it also says that she doesn't want him to go after her killer. And it says, if my body is never retrieved, don't worry. Know that I'm at peace. After she's already on the train, Victor finds this note in their home. And he is completely confused by it. He has no idea that she is suicidal. He has no idea that she has these dark fantasies. He didn't know that she wanted to leave the marriage, it seems. He was just totally shocked by finding this note. He was very confused as to why she mentioned a killer, why she's talking about her body. All of it was just very, very distressing for him. And he does try to get a hold of her, but she's not able to be reached and he doesn't even know where she's going at this point he thinks she's on a train to georgia that's his uh reality there very stressful experience for him i'm sure well and sad can you imagine being completely blindsided and your spouse just takes off and you're left with the realization that you didn't know this person at all it's very jarring so going back to sharon she's on this train and she gets to north carolina around 8 45 p.m. And Richard is there. He's so ready. He picks her up with his truck and he drives her back to his trailer in Lenore, North Carolina. So there were 80, about 80 miles of a drive for them. And Sharon stays with Robert for a few days. I think it was like three days. And Robert is he's going to work while Sharon's at his house and then coming home. So we can assume that they're having some sexual experiences, kind of dabbling with some torture experiences during these three days while Sharon's alive at his house. Wow. So I have a question about that. So he's going to work and she's staying at his house willingly or does he have her restrained in some way? So what's interesting about these three days is that there's not a lot of record about them. Robert doesn't talk about it And there's nobody else alive to tell that story. We know that she was alive during these three days, but we don't know. She might have been shackled to a wall. She might have been chloroformed. We don't really know. She had consented to any kind of torture that led to death. So he may have been having a heyday for these three days, but he was still going to work, which is... I find that interesting. It's like he just puts the mask back on and goes to work for eight hours. Yeah, but that's just what I think we've both discovered is what this is like with these fetishers. It's like two different people living in one body. Yeah. And so this goes on for three days. And then October 16th, Sharon dies. Robert admitted that this was the day that it happened. He says 
that Sharon died accidentally while they were having sex. He said that she had a nylon cord around her neck and that he pulled the cord while uh, she was orgasming. And he's quoted as saying, I don't know how much I pulled on the rope. I should not have pulled on the rope. I never wanted to kill her, but she ended up dead. I don't think that last statement is true. Do you? Not at all. I find it very interesting that this sort of mirrors the Jane Longhurst case with Graham Coots, because Graham Coots also said that Jane's murder was an accident, and I don't believe that it was. And so this this case with Sharon and Robert is even harder to believe that because they had had 900 pages of emails where they both agreed that this is what they were going to do. Yeah, it's mind blowing. And it's a horrible, horrible story. But I believe they both knew exactly where this was going. Because that's, again, what they had been writing about and exchanging these messages about. And that's what they had hoped for. I don't believe Robert at all. Only a fly on the wall would know the truth about what happened. I imagine that their sexual encounter was very violent and that it was something that they both wanted. can't imagine it being any other way. It's very hard for me to put myself in the mind frame of that. Like I do wonder in the moment that it was happening, if Sharon was at peace with it happening or if there was some part of her that changed her mind. It makes me kind of sad because it would have been too late for her if she realized that this wasn't what she wanted when she was already in his trailer with a a rope around her neck. You know, sometimes I think about that in terms of the fetishers, especially these cases where we investigate real murders because they've spent all of this time, all of these hours talking about these fantasies and the things that they want to have happen. And then when they're actually acting it out, what part of this mental illness that they have, because that's what it is, prevents them from understanding that this is forever. There won't be any more acting this out. When you're dead, you're dead. And so sometimes I think about that and I wonder just how mentally ill some of these people are, Alicia. It just seems like they're so entrenched in this idea of death that it, they've romanticized it to the point where I don't know that they understand that the, what the true consequences are. I remember reading this passage on one of the death fetish forums. I believe it was Fet Noir, where a woman named Grace X, she mentions that once somebody kills her and is having sex with her dead body, that she will be a spirit watching from above and enjoying it. And I'm just not sure that that's the case. But I do see what you're saying there. And it makes me wonder if they're they're operating under these false pretenses or they aren't quite understanding what this means. Yeah, that's something that I would like to continue to try to research. And as we hopefully interview more and more people involved in the this fetish culture, that's a question that we could ask. Definitely thought provoking one. So this was all happening and with Sharon and with Robert. And meanwhile, back in Maryland, Victor was going through Sharon's computer. I mean, I can just imagine that he's frantic trying to find out what's going on with his wife. And that's when Victor finds all these messages from Slohan. And I just, I can almost see that moment in my mind. I mean, just the terror he must have felt. I just can't imagine that moment for him. And so he finds these messages and he decides he's going to file a missing persons report. He files that report on October 20th. He gives the police access to Sharon's computer. The police are just astounded by this. They can't believe a woman would get on a train 
to go get murdered willingly. Like it blows their mind. I mean, to even say it out loud, it blows my mind. Police decide we've got to act quickly. So North Carolina police start a stakeout on October 22nd and they're watching Robert's trailer. And I want to add that that was a very rundown trailer. Oh yeah, we've got some pictures of what his trailer and property looked like at the time of Sharon's murder. And we will definitely be posting those as um, you know some extra content on our Patreon. The police, they're doing the stakeout and they don't see any signs of Sharon at all. They grow more and more concerned. And so three days later on October 25th, 1996, the police get a search warrant so they can go inside the trailer And that's where they discover items that belong to Sharon. So they know she's been there. In addition to the things that belong to Sharon, they find some horrific things. They found drugs, bondage equipment. They found child pornography magazines. No. I mean, that, (sighs) yeah, terrible, terrible. They find a 357 pistol. They find several computer discs as well as trash and toys outside the trailer. A plethora of disgusting things. I mean, this is not a normal scenario. This guy was not normal. The police then noticed this mound of soil that's about 75 feet away from the trailer. And so they go to investigate that and they find body parts that are buried like two and a half feet below in this mound. And Mm. it was the body of Sharon. That's so sad. It's terrible. The autopsy revealed that the cause of her death was strangulation. It was just a horrible, gruesome death. Robert Glass was then arrested. They arrested him at his job. Can you imagine how shocked his co-workers were? Not old Bobby, the mild-mannered guy. (laughs) So they walk in, they arrest him. They charge him with first-degree murder. He ends up being held without bond in the Caldwell County Jail. And on top of all these other charges, he's then faced with additional state and federal charges for the possession of child pornography. That frightens me for his children because they had been living with him up until the time Sherry left. Yeah, Sherry definitely made the right choice there to just kind of remove them all from his presence. Yeah, thank goodness that she did. Police continue to investigate. They read all the emails between Sharon and Robert. And I'm sure that was just a shocking, mind-blowing task. And they determined that that he murdered Sharon. They felt like the death was absolutely intentional. He plea bargains. He pleads guilty to voluntary manslaughter and sexual exploitation charges. And on January 27th of 2000, he was sentenced to 36 to 53 months in the Avery Mitchell Correctional Institution. He was then sentenced to an additional 27 months for federal charges of second degree minor exploitation. He never finished serving his time though. Robert was found dead of a heart attack in prison on February 20th of 2002. And that was just one month before he was to finish his state sentence and begin his federal sentence. Robert was up to a lot of things that were very, very, very dark outside of just the death fetish, you know, the the child pornography. And we've not even really explored that portion with him, but just overall, I just think he was a very, very dark and disturbed individual. Totally agree. And it's scary to realize that that was not a very long sentence and that he would have been out back in the public had he not had that heart attack. So that's kind of interesting, sort of like a divine intervention of sorts. That's karma. The whole story, I'm just sitting here with my mouth open still because I cannot believe that 
these are real people and that these thoughts turned into this very real plan for them. And it just caused so much sorrow and destruction for both of their lives and all the people surrounding their lives. And some of the people that were in their lives were other fetishers, other people in the death fetish community. And there definitely was talk about this murder. It was all over the news. It was a really big scandal. You have to put yourself back in the late 90s and the trial carried on through the year 2000. So people were talking about this. They remembered these two users in the news groups, in the extreme fetish groups. And there was this user named Pero Loco, which is a mad dog. He said that he had corresponded with Slowhand and he was defending him. He said, he's a compassionate man. He said, it was unfortunately stupid that he did not insist that Sharon bring her hard drive to wipe. Not to mention, he should have taken her somewhere safer to do her. So... That just disgusts me that the fetishers on these deaf fetish communities are weighing in on this. And they're not saying, whoa, this is shocking or whoa, this is crossing the line. They're basically saying he didn't do it good enough. He should have hid his crime better. She should have brought her computer for him to get rid of the evidence. This is the mindset of the other fetishers. Well, I think that also negates this idea that they try to sell people that this is just fantasy because he's absolutely this mad dog is giving his opinion about how the crime should have been committed better, quote unquote. And so these are things that they've thought out. And that's what concerns me. That's why I've always believed that there's a lot of true crime that is happening within these communities. I believe that they the users absolutely support that. I think this statement that you just shared is proof of that. I'm not bothered he killed her. I'm bothered that he didn't do it right. I mean, that's disgusting. And he wasn't the only one. There were a lot of other users who sort of came to both of their defenses and said, look, this is okay. It was consensual. This shouldn't be illegal. It's a well-established law that you cannot consent to your own killing, except for in very limited circumstances, like medically assisted suicide. It just, in this day and age, it still is illegal to tell someone that it's okay to kill you. And I think that it should remain that way because there are people in various states of mental illness or, you know, someone might be having a psychotic episode or someone might have a mental disability. There's a lot of reasons why it shouldn't be okay for you to allow or to give that permission. It might not be what's actually... Uh, right or best for you. I completely agree with you. And I, you know, I start thinking back to some of the investigative work we've done in this community. And, and we touch on a lot of that in the book that we wrote, Strangled, Alicia. And one of the things that I know we've always believed is that there are real crimes that are happening. But as we got into our investigation and we saw that these people were starting to be concerned that an investigation was happening, they were concerned that people were, quote unquote, sniffing around in their community, we saw some websites shut down. Mm -hmm. And you and I have talked about that. We believe, and I still believe to this day, that those sites shut down because there were 
real things happening and being said and being done within those communities that would have led them to being charged with the crime. And I point that out because in Fet Noir, for example, there was mention of some users that were into child exploitation and pornography. So these communities are harboring fugitives, so to speak. You know, they're harboring these people who are very, very dark and have often ties that are much further than just death fetish. I feel like that's completely safe to say. And I think that this case that we're talking about is a good example of that. Absolutely. When I read what they're willing to post in a public area on the internet, I'm like, well, what are they not willing to tell me? If this is not a secret of theirs, what else is going on for this person? And this is a a great example of just the escalation process that happens here. You're talking about a feeder fetish and then it becomes more and more and more and you cannot get that like fix until you're doing something more extreme. And so I do believe that death fetish can easily branch out into abductions, murders, rapes, uh, child abductions, pedophilia, pornography. It just, it seems like there's no limits at a certain point for these people. Yeah, I completely agree. It's scary. And I think, again, that's why the work that we're doing, honestly, is so important to shine a light on this. People need to understand that this is happening in your communities and it's happening by seemingly normal people like Robert Glass. I hope that people want to do their own research. I think a good example of something that they could do to learn more about this case is they could watch the film Downloading Nancy that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2008. That's probably a good place to start. It talks a little bit about this case. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Alicia, have you been able to watch it yet? Nope. I just discovered it when we were researching this episode. So I'm excited to spend some time this weekend watching it. But I, I love that there are other people that are trying to bring these topics up And I think we need more of that. Absolutely. So thank you to the listeners for joining us today. We hope you'll tune in next week as we expose another death fetish producer. Yes, I'm excited to expose another producer next week and always so thankful to connect with the listeners. Farewell for now, friends, and remember to keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon patreon.com backslash deep dark secrets sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode